Welcome back to He Leadeth Me, a spiritual formation podcast for Focus staff, students, and friends. I'm Jessica, Focus's Manager of Spiritual Formation, and today I'm joined by our friend Father Kevin, who is our Head National Chaplain, and we have a special guest, Hillary Drafts. Hillary is the Director of our West Area, so she oversees 46 Focus teams and over 220 Focus missionaries. And fun fact that I learned about Hillary just recently is that she has a Bachelor of Arts in Film Studies and English Literature. So guys, recently I was with friends and we like to watch movies together and we didn't have any ideas for the next movie we were going to watch. So I looked up this list on the internet of 100 greatest movies of all time and I was shocked at the amount of movies that I did not think belonged on the list. And I was shocked that the BBC's 1995 version of Pride and Prejudice was nowhere to be found on this list. What a tragedy. But then there were some genuinely good movies. And this got me thinking about how you evaluate what movies you're going to see and how movies impact the spiritual life, and especially what movies you should watch with your disciples. So that's our topic of discussion today, movies you should watch with your disciples. But before we dive in, I wanted to talk about how you evaluate what movies you even want to see, because movies, they make such a profound impression on our imaginations, and that impacts our spiritual lives. So Hillary, studying film in college, you must have done a lot of deeper thinking on film. So I'm really interested to hear what you have to say about how you evaluate whether or not you want to see a new movie that comes out. Great question, Jessica. Thanks so much for letting me be here today. Longtime listener, first time caller. Um, really, <laughs> really excited to talk about this topic because I think so often that we who are trying to pursue virtue and trying to live a Christian life in this world that is so hostile to those values, we often think about movies and TVs and TV and other content in kind of a superficial way. You know, we ask ourselves only, is there anything inappropriate in this content? And if there's nothing inappropriate, then it must be good for me to watch. But what I think was most helpful for me going through my film studies program was essentially looking at the deeper meaning of what is a movie trying to communicate. We see this also with literature, you know, like, is there graphic sexual content? Is there obscene language in the film? Do they say anything explicitly against the Catholic faith that I should take offense in? Actually, in some cases, there could be sin depicted on screen that looks like sin and looks ugly. And that's actually a really good and true thing. And that could actually be good for our formation to understand sin as sin in, in all of its ugliness. So I'm not saying go out and watch all the dirty movies. I'm saying as we're watching things, we want to look deeper at that next level, that even something that looks pure on the surface might be speaking a narrative that undermines the truth of our faith and, and the truth of the world as God created it. That's a really good point. That kind of makes me think of the movie Les Mis versus the movie Pretty Woman, where both movies, you have prostitution. And yet in one of them, it's not necessarily being glorified, but at the same time, the sin is not being pointed out. And in the other, even though it's showing a lot of sin, it's showing how that's an evil and it destroys a human person. And yet God can redeem those who have committed evil. Father Kevin, do you have any thoughts about how you would evaluate movies when they come out? Well, it's interesting. Like film and literature are similar in that they do different things. Like we call it cinema, we call it literature, but 
one author might be trying to do a very different thing than another author. For instance, one movie might be making an evaluative claim. Like they want to, they want to lead you toward some conclusion, whether they're explicit about it or not. But another book or another movie might be the maker's primary goal might just to be to reveal something. Like there's just, there's a slice of life that they're taken with and they want to depict it for people to see and to enter into that experience without as strong of an evaluative element of, of what they're doing. So partly when I'm looking at a movie, I'm asking, what is the author trying to do? That's going to change how I evaluate whether I think it's a, a good movie, a bad movie, a movie others should watch. So yeah, that's one of the interesting things I find in film, the different levels it works on. Yeah, and I think it's important to evaluate not just what individual movies we choose to watch and fill our minds with, but also the genres of movies. Now, I think that it's perfectly acceptable just to watch a good comedy. Uh, it doesn't have to have a deeper meaning, but sometimes it's just good to be entertained and to laugh. Romantic comedies, I think, have gone drastically downhill in recent years. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, like most of them are totally harmless. But I'm curious what you guys think about the horror genre, because I will not watch any horror films. And there were two horror films that came out recently. I forget the name of one of them, but I think it starred Russell Crowe, and it was about an exorcist. And I think it was supposed to be modeled off of the life of the leading exorcist of Rome. And there was an interview with Russell Crowe, and they said, well, you know, you took liberties with some aspects of his life. And he says, well, you know, it's film. It's not supposed to be realistic. And so the goal of that movie was just to scare you and show you horrible things about the spiritual life. And those things are true. It's just that I don't need to fill my mind with thoughts of demons. But then there was another movie that came out. I think it was called Nefarious. And people told me, well, this one really depicted deliverance well. And so I'm assuming that it talks about Jesus's role in deliverance. But I'm not going to go and see that movie either because it deals with things that I would think belong in the horror genre. And I just don't think that it's good for me to be focusing so much on evil. And I don't feel that way about films like Schindler's List, but I do feel that way about horror films. So what do you guys think about the horror genre? There's a level you have to evaluate for yourself where you are and how it's going to impact you. Mm -hmm. So let's... Take, for instance, the topic of the amount of sexual content in a movie. Different people are going to react to it in different ways, depending on, on where they are. And you know, definitely in the religious life, you know, we think about a movie, you know, I've heard Brother Jesuit say, you know what? No, I can't, I can't go there right now. You know, that's just not something I want to take in. Whereas another person could see that movie and it does not affect them in that way. It does not phase them. And they're able to see the main argument that's being made in the movie. So there is a certain subjective element, although there's, of course, objective components too, to, you know, there's just certain things that there's no need ever to see it. What do you think, Hillary? 
Well, I'm like you, Jess. I'm not a big fan of the the horror genre personally. I just, I, those aren't images I typically want to have in my brain. And, you know, now that I'm a parent, I, we especially, I rarely watch movies without my kids. So we have to be very careful about kids having nightmares and stuff like that. So yeah, to Father Kevin's point, subjectively, I'm in a place in my life where horror is not a genre that appeals to me usually. Although you'll see with our recommendations later in the show, one of my two is like the only movie I currently love that I think you could technically call horror and probably would be shelved that way in Blockbuster Video <laughs> if we still had Blockbuster Video. I heard there's one in Oregon still. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think that what's interesting about genres and with what we call in the film world generic conventions, like the conventions of each genre, is that they do tell you something about the culture that's forming those. You know, and horror really does. Um, I've heard you say it too, Jess, that it tells you what a culture is afraid of. And so there's interesting sociological analyses in even just watching the trailers that you get, you know, during an NFL football game of what kind of horror movies are coming out. So I don't personally prefer to, to put that in my mind. And I think we do need to think about movies as more than just entertainment. Like they are shaping culture. They are shaping individual worldviews of individual people. And so when we're watching movies, we have to think about that for ourselves. Just because we have great formation doesn't mean we're above being formed by whatever we're watching. And the same is true with our disciples as we're kind of shepherding them. We want to help them have a worldview where they can make good critical decisions about these things because, you know, our leisure is also meant to glorify God. There's not like a separate entertainment bucket in our brain. We have one brain and our prayer and our discipleship is also impacted by the things that we take in during a time of entertainment. So it's important that we think of these things holistically and that we remember all things that we do in our off hours, in our on hours are meant to glorify God. And so sometimes that that can mean, you know, watching things that have a deeper, beautiful meaning or show us like a brokenness in humanity. Uh, and sometimes we just have to say, you know, there are better things I can do with my time right now. And that's personally where I come from with most horror movies these days. Well, that's a great point that all of these movies form us and they shape our culture. So great segue into our movie recommendations. So I want each of you to give me two recommendations that you would recommend people watch with their disciples. So we'll start off with one recommendation from Hillary, ladies first, and then we'll go to Father Kevin and just go back and forth. So Hillary, what's your first recommendation? Okay, well, I will start then with the one I just alluded to. So uh, if anyone hasn't seen A Quiet Place, I think it's what, six years old now, seven years old? Uh, phenomenal. John Krasinski. It's technically, I think, called a movie in the horror genre, although I would call the gore extremely mild. It is very low on gore. Uh, it's more of a thriller in my mind than a horror movie because um, there's not a lot of blood. There's not like a lot of straight up evil stuff. But um, really what I love about this movie uh, is the same thing I love about my actual like guilty pleasure secret favorite genre is what I call cheesy disaster movies. This uh, is perhaps typified in my mind by the movie San Andreas with starring The Rock. And that is because it's the cheesiest of them all. There are better quality ones out there. But San Andreas kind of shows like the core cheese of the genre, which is like horrible, horribly predictive dialogue. Um, but the main point of the cheesy disaster movie, there's always an estranged father to start. He's lazy. He's not treating his wife well enough. He's usually separated or divorced from her. And he is usually kind of a lame or deadbeat dad to his kids. But the disaster in the surrounding environment, which is in the case of what I call cheesy disaster movies, usually a natural phenomenon of some kind, an earthquake, 
uh, freeze that takes over the world and the day after tomorrow, et cetera, et cetera. The wave that's coming, is that um, what's deep impact? Because there's yes. a meteor that's got this giant wave that's going to like tsunami all the East Coast. Um, okay, all these movies in the face of this disaster, the dad steps up becomes the dad he was meant to be, reunites with his family, becomes the husband he was meant to be, reunites with his wife. Um, and there's this kind of trajectory in most classic American film genres to forming families. This is what musicals are all about, forming couples. This is what romantic comedies obviously are all about. This is what a lot of cheesy disaster movies and thrillers are about, constituting the family, bringing the family back together. So not quite in this genre, but A Quiet Place is similar. The, the dad is a little bit emotionally distant, John Krasinski. And throughout the course of dealing with the aftermath of these aliens who have invaded and are kind of taking over human civilization on Earth, he really rises to the challenge of being there for his kids. And I don't want to spoil it with any more details than that. But um, it's just incredible cinema. So if you want to just appreciate the art of cinema, the sound editing is amazing because these aliens, any sound draws them. They don't have eyes. They can't see, but they can hear incredibly well. And so everybody who's still alive on earth has to be ridiculously quiet. And so the acting is just amazing because they can't cover up with dialogue. Like they have to act with their faces and with their body language. So the interactions of this family, the way that the dad like steps up in the face of this challenge. It's just so inspiring. It's absolutely worth the jumpiness of the thriller part. If you can handle that, it's totally, totally amazing. Isn't there a last name in the movie Abbott? I, I you read, might be right, father. I forgot about that. I read somewhere that there's, there's a number of references to like the, I guess like the home becoming a monastery. I'm not at all surprised to hear that. I know Bishop Barron has a couple of good articles sort of analyzing A Quiet Place. The sequel is also good. It's not as good as the first one cinematically, but it's it's a well-told story and also, you know, something I could in good conscience recommend to missionaries to watch with their disciples. But the first one is just, yeah, it's just unparalleled. The depth of it and the richness of that text is so good. Well, and, you know, jumpiness, that's something that I could do. Um, but it's not, the the goal of the movie is not horror per se. Mm -hmm. And that's fascinating. Now that you mention that disaster movies are about basically a father figure stepping into the father that he's always been meant to be. Now I'm seeing that everywhere with tons of disaster movies that I know of. So that's fascinating. And what a good message for men and women today. Mm -hmm. I do allow myself the guilty pleasure of watching Independence Day almost every 4th of July. Okay, that's totally <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> All right, Father Kevin, what's your first pick? I'm going to go with Tree of Life by Terrence Malick. What I find interesting about this movie deals with the director's own personal story, that he was on the track to becoming a professor of philosophy. And I believe the story goes, he was teaching a class at MIT and just in the middle of the class becomes convinced that the method of inquiry he was using was not appropriate to the questions he was asking or the places he wanted to go. And so he just changed course and went to film school and started making movies. He made two movies in the 70s that were very well regarded and then went silent for a number of years, just silent. And he doesn't give interviews, anything like that. And he came back after his period of silence and I guess that was like the early 90s, mid 90s that he came back with his war movie starring Jim Caviezel. And it came out the same year as Saving Private Ryan. So it didn't get as much attention as it uh, might have. But I think a lot of people would say that the Tree of Life 
was his best film. Roger Ebert put it on his top 10 movies of all time. And I think what Terrence Malick is trying to do with film is lead people into a contemplative experience. Mm. And a contemplative experience understood in a few ways. One, to look at reality in a new light. And so his movies usually have long shots of nature or of just, you know, home moments, things like that, without much dialogue. And if there's any dialogue, it might be a voiceover. And that can be one of the things that turns people off, because sometimes the voiceovers sound a little cheesy. But he wants the viewer to enter into a certain contemplative space and then also to propose certain questions. So the tree of life is really a theodicy because it arises from his own experience of his brother dying and asking the question, what is the meaning that we can find in this world when such things happen? The movie begins with, you know, a grown man, you know, looking back at his life, being kind of lost, almost like you know, the beginning of the Divine Comedy, being lost in the middle of life. And thinking back to the moment where he found out that his brother died and you see his, his mother finding out the news. And then you're transported back to the Big Bang. And he takes you on this journey through the development of the entire universe all the way to the conceiving of a single boy, which is the main character, which is really Terrence Malick. And then you're led through, I think, one of the best depictions of boyhood I've ever seen, as you just follow this single life through all of the experiences and questions that people experience, especially boys experience as they grow older. Everything from, you know, wanting to be good, but having to wrestle against your own passions to, you know, the, the death of people too soon to, you know, the natural evils of disability or the things that you, you just, you wonder and ask questions about. And then also the tensions of family life and, you know, leads on to there through this, uh, I guess you would call it an apocalyptic moment at the end, but it's not heavy handed in providing the answers, but it really wants you to enter in and ask the same questions that that he is struggling with, with obviously certain nods toward where he's finding the answers. That contemplative bent, that's really interesting. I remember, I don't know how many years ago, a movie called Integrate Silence came mm -hmm. out. And it was, I think, three hours of almost total silence in a monastery in Europe. And they say that it took German audiences by storm. People were going to see this movie too, three times. It was the number one movie. And everybody was asking, why is it that very secular, often atheist Germans are engaging so well with this movie about contemplative monks? And people were saying, because it's touching a part of their hearts that doesn't get touched very often anymore. It's a contemplative space. And so it sounds like this movie does that as well. And I'll also say an amazing aspect of this movie is that it begins with a voiceover of a section of The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis. Oh, you're nice. kidding. <laughs> wow. 
Well, my other thought about a Terrence Malick film, too, is if you're inviting your disciples over on a Friday night to watch a Terrence Malick film, make sure they know what to expect. (laughs) You have to prepare them beforehand (laughs) because they're not for everybody. Like, this is an event. This is not like come over and watch an Adam Sandler movie. This is like come over and we're going to just settle in and we're going to use our brains and we're going to use our hearts and we're going to lift our minds to the transcendent. And it'd be awesome. Highly recommend. Well, it doesn't surprise me that you started off with a philosophical recommendation. In in our episode about three books you should read, you recommended Brave New World, which has scarred me psychologically. <laughs> I'm still slogging through it. Too. Jess and I decided to read it together, and I still haven't finished it. She powered through it faster than me. I had to. It was Lent. So, all right, Hillary, what is your second recommendation? Okay, I'm going to allow myself a little indulgence uh, going outside the mainstream here, like Father started us off on his his too. So a 2004 Israeli film that I love called Ush Pizin, U-S-H-P-I-Z-I-N, Ush Pizin. Um, so it is dubbed in English or not dubbed, it's subtitled in English and it is spoken in Hebrew. So, you know, don't, don't get freaked out by foreign films. It's totally worth, worth the effort. Um, but this is a movie that is about the most Christian movie I've ever seen, even though it's a Jewish film. Um, just the, the themes are so beautifully hospitable. It's about charity. It's about conversion. And really like the Jewish community that this is filmed in, that it depicts is kind of the essential, essentially the equivalent of like evangelical Christians, or maybe you could say charismatic Catholics. Like they're a very expressive community. There's scenes where they do praise and worship, just sincerely praising the Lord. And it's such a beautiful depiction of of the faith. And I think for us to get a sense of more modern Jewish culture, it is filmed in the Holy Land and it takes place in, in Israel. And uh, it takes place around the Feast of Booths. So also the scripture references, if you guys watched this movie with your disciples, I would highly recommend uh, cracking open John chapter seven, where Jesus lives through the Feast of Booths and, you know, talks about living water. And there's, there's various elements of that Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles in there. And then the feast is originally mentioned in Leviticus 23, I think. The premise is that on this feast, Jewish people move out of their homes and they live in essentially a tent. So you've also seen this in The Chosen. If you have watched The Chosen season, I figured if it's one or two, they live out the Feast of Tabernacles. And so what's beautiful about it is a couple of the customs that I didn't know about until watching this movie are that they have this this citron, this fruit that is like a prized possession during the, the feast. And it's not meant to be eaten. It's like, it's kind of the symbolic thing. And it's considered a great blessing if you get a visitor during this time that you can host them with hospitality in your booth. The whole feast is meant to mark the desert wanderings that happened in the 40 years between the first time the Israelites got sight of the promised land and when they were actually allowed to enter. And in commemoration of that, they live out there, they welcome any visitors that come to them. And so this main character is uh, very faithful now, but he has a sordid past. And two fellow inmates from the prison where he used to be serving out a sentence for a crime, uh, they end up coming by during the Feast of Tabernacles. And so at first, he and his wife are so excited to show them honor and hospitality. And these two really don't make themselves good house guests. So it's funny and it's heartwarming. And it just gives us a great window into this amazing culture of Judaism out of which our Lord was born. And I mean, if you think about the Feast of Tabernacles, that's what Jesus came to do with us, right? He came to tabernacle among us, John chapter one. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us could be translated. The word was made flesh and tabernacled among us. So there's just so many beautiful meditations that we could have on presence and incarnation and how that looks between people in our evangelization 
creation work and how that looks with the Lord dwelling with his people and just the burning desire for the coming of the Messiah in the hearts of these these Jewish characters. So beautiful, beautiful movie. It's not very long. It's really accessible in terms of foreign films. So that's a great one to start with. Yeah, that sounds wonderful. And it would be great just to learn more about those feasts and different things that Jesus is talking about in the scriptures so that we can understand what they mean for our own lives. And it's even better that that film also has humor and and, Mm -hmm. uh, those more lighthearted elements. All right, Father Kevin, time for number four. Finish us out. I have to go with something by the Coen brothers because I love the Coen brothers and I've watched so many of their movies over the years and, and multiple times. I've probably seen Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Upwards of 25 times in my life. But I, I, think I'll, I think I'll go with true grit as something which, if, if the criterion is something you're going to watch with your disciples, true grit might be the better route to go. It has the elements that you see in all Coen Brothers movies, moments of humor, moments of violence, and also an attention to time and place, and particularly patterns of human language. So you know, I was saying earlier about one element of film being just depicting a time and place, you know, revealing some aspect of the world. They just have such an ear for the way people speak and the language that they use. So it's always interesting to listen to the characters speak. Here it's 19th century Americans on the frontier, and hardly anybody uses a contraction throughout the entire movie. But but what makes this movie interesting, and this is something that, that Bishop Barron pointed out, in one of his YouTube videos is the way that the Coen brothers rework the source material. So True Grit is basically the story of a girl, Maddie Ross, whose father is murdered by Tom Chaney, and she is looking to bring him to justice. And she finds this kind of washed up, drunk Texas uh, marshal, U.S. marshal named Rooster Cogburn to go find him. And what the Coen brothers develop in this is amazing. Because Maddie Ross and Rooster Cogburn, they go on their hunt for Tom Chaney. Finally, at the end of the movie, they find him. But not until many people have died. And, you know, there's just destruction left and right. Rooster Cogburn risks his life to go and save Maddie Ross. And then at the final point of the movie, Maddie Ross has her opportunity for revenge. And she takes her revenge. And in the very act of getting her revenge, she's knocked down into a literal snake pit where she is snake bit. The obvious scriptural allusions here. So Rooster Cogburn you know, comes down, picks her up, holds her in, her, in his arms, hops on his horse and brings her to the doctor. The very end of the movie we see an old Maddie Ross, an old spinster, uh, very prim and proper and severe. And, and then we notice that part of her arm is amputated. So obviously they were able to save her, but not her arm because of the snake bite. And the final song that closes the movie is Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. And Bishop Barron just picked this up very insightfully. He said, Okay, the everlasting arms, why why this? He says, ah, well, you know, in scripture that God is depicted as having two arms, the arms of mercy and the arm of justice. And so you see in this heroine, Maddie Ross, who's you know a great character, that her 
single-minded pursuit of justice left her incomplete because she did not have the arm of mercy. And Rooster is portrayed as somebody who, you know, holding her in the arms both of justice, he is a lawman, and sometimes, you know, too much of a lawman. But this encounter with her brought out the arm of mercy within him. So, you know, whether the Cohen brothers had all of this in mind, it's hard to imagine they didn't. But that is part of the ambiguity of movies is that they allow us room to interpret and say, is this what it's saying? And whether the director was saying it or not, it definitely brings up the, the thoughts within us and things to contemplate and ponder. That's fascinating. I have never seen that movie. Now I want to. But actually, I have not seen any of the movies that you suggested because none of them were Jane Austen adaptations. <laughs> so maybe that'll be a future episode. <laughs> well, any final thoughts about movies you should watch with your disciples or about the spiritual impact that movies can have on you? It's a great question. Um, I mean, I can think of many times where my prayer, my kind of fodder for daily mental prayer has been something I saw in a movie, a particularly poignant scene, even, you know, well-made TV shows that are artistic enough to be, I think, as high quality as movies. I I was really into Lost, you know, how long ago was that? 15 years ago. Um, There's one episode, the season finale of like the second to last season of Lost. I think I prayed about it for two weeks. (laughs) So it is okay. Like we can be, you know, lighthearted about these things and and these artists when they're doing their craft well they're showing reality to us they're revealing it to us maybe from a new perspective or or in a new way my last thought is that the best Jane Austen adaptation is Alicia Silverstone's Clueless thank you (laughs) (laughs) wow Father Kevin any closing thoughts yeah I would say that it's a good thing to just grow with that critical eye of the movies that we watch one it's interesting and it's fun to look at things more deeply Now, of course, you can get the reputation of the person who's always, you know, trying to say, well, you know, what's really going on here? Do you see, you know, when people are just trying to uh, relax and have a good time? But we all have to develop that ability in life to look with a critical eye at at what we take in. And even if it's going back and watching the Will Ferrell movies that you imbibed when you were in high school with a new eye to say, just a minute, this is what was actually going on there. There can be something fruitful, and it's a place we all need to go and develop. That's a great point. Well, now I have four new movies that I can watch with friends, and I hope that any missionaries watching or anybody who has disciples and wants to find spiritual elements in movies will watch these four movies. Father Kevin, could you close us in a blessing? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. God Almighty Father, we give you great thanks and praise for your goodness to us, for the world that you have created. We pray for the gift of your Holy Spirit in our hearts, that in all things we might see the face of Christ and that we might know his will for us, his plan for us, that we might be drawn closer to his sacred heart in our salvation. And may Almighty God bless all of you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, thank you both for joining me. This was a really fun conversation. And thanks, everyone, for listening.